Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you chronologically through Swedish history, one episode at a time. This is episode 53, War and Peace, and I'm Elsa. I am Chris, and don't worry, this episode won't be quite as long as the novel of the same name, but it is going to be a long one, so let's jump straight into our Swedish phrase, which is Pudelnskärna. Which means the core of the poodle. The dog poodle. Yes. Well, I guess at the heart of a poodle, there's its heart and other organs, maybe some love. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. And that's not too far off in terms of what this phrase means, because it means the heart of the matter or the real meaning of something. So you could say, well, what is really at the core of the poodle here is not if it's right or wrong, but if what they did was against a law. So the the core of the matter is the core of the poodle, pudens kärna. I'd say it's quite a common phrase in Swedish, but I had no idea about its origin. I looked it up in the National Encyclopedia, and apparently it comes from Johann Wolfgang Goethe's play Faust from the early 1800s, in which the character Dr. Faust says, Das was war des Pudels Kern, when Mephistopheles, another character, has first appeared disguised as a poodle, but then finally appears as a traveling student. That sounds bonkers, and it hasn't really clarified anything for me at all. <laughs> no, but I mean, as Goethe, I, I, that's just where the phrase comes from. I take no responsibility. I suppose Sweden and Swedish has historically been very influenced by Germany and the German language, and I guess Goethe was the superstar of his time, so maybe that's why the phrase made it into common use. That may be, but now back to the chronology. Last time we gave a bit of an overview of the situation in Denmark, Norway and Sweden as Magnus became ruler of Sweden and Norway. His mother and his mother's cousin, both Norwegian princesses called Ingeborg, were in nominal control of these countries at the time. But political figures such as Knut Jonsson and Matt Shettelson led the nobility in the councils. As the first few years went by, Ingeborg number 1, Magnus's mother, started to take more and more advice from younger foreign citizens, which annoyed both of the councils. It's perhaps important to note that in 1321, Ingeborg is only 20 years old herself, much younger than the majority of the men on the Swedish council. The council's annoyance with Ingeborg only grew in the summer of 1321 when she signed a marriage contract with the German region of Mecklenburg, specifically with Henry the Lion, Lord of Mecklenburg, who was marrying off his son Albert to Magnus's sister Euphemia. Both children were under five years old, so it was very much a pre-marriage agreement looking towards the future, but Ingeborg was counting on there being immediate benefits to this marriage contract. That is because in her role as Duchess of Halland on the Danish border and having personal control of the northern half of that county herself, she is keen to conquer Skåne from the Danish kingdom whilst Denmark is essentially falling apart now that King Erik Manved is dead and King Christopher II is yet to be formally crowned. 
Mecklenburg, along with a number of German allies, have pledged their support to the Duchess. The Norwegian Council thinks this invasion is a good idea, but the Swedish Council is adamant no such military incursion into Denmark is to take place. Ingeboy, however, is sure it will be a success, due to the help promised from the Germans and the poor state of the Danish kingdom. And that was where we left it off last time. Scandinavia is on the brink of war once again, and things aren't too rosy back home in Sweden either. But before Ingeborg can set her plans in motion in Skåne, another familiar opponent rears their ugly head once more. Of course it's Novgorod. The background to this is the growing dominance of trade throughout the Baltic states by the Hanseatic League, We've seen various trade treaties signed over the past 50 years or so that say trade with Sweden but not Novgorod or the reverse. And an obvious, if slightly excessive, solution to this is for one side to try and defeat the other in war and impose stringent peace terms on the other side. Maybe hoping to take advantage of a young king and a regency council, Novgorod, led by Grand Prince Jurij Danilovic, attack Viboy. Unfortunately, no details are known about this, apart from that it was an unsuccessful attack. Using Viboy as a jumping-off point, the following year Sweden attacks Kexholm, which, if you remember, is on the western shores of Lake Ladoga, only 120 kilometers or 75 miles-ish east of Viboy. So this is really a border conflict that's going on. Again, unfortunately, no results are known, apart from the fact that the Swedes don't conquer Kexholm. Kexholm has actually been recently fortified by the Novgorodians with a new castle built a decade before the attack, so this was probably a big nut to crack and prove too strong for the Swedes. Novgorod then try to go all in and this time prepare a proper assault on V-Boy. They have come prepared for a full siege. As the Swedish defenders retreat back to the V-Boy castle to defend it from the Novgorod attackers, they would have seen six odd shapes trundle into view in the mid-August sun. It might not be the first time Swedish troops have encountered such a phenomenon, but as far as we have seen, it is the first mention of it in any literature. And amusingly, whilst the Swedes might not be sure what these shapes are, we aren't even sure what they are <laughs> ourselves. The options, equally fun in my opinion, are battering rams or catapults. Our copy of the Novgorod Chronicle, albeit translated in 1914, calls them battering rams, whereas the book Medieval Swedish Wars from 1999 by Swedish historian Ulf Sundberg calls them kastmachina, throwing machines, and therefore catapults. So, yes, there are six siege engines at least. Whilst we don't seem to have encountered them in Swedish literature, this is actually the fifth time Novgorod have used this type of siege equipment, according to their own chronicle, with the first mention way back in 1204, so we can presume they knew what they were doing. In fact, let's read what the Novgorod Chronicle says in our version. Yuri went with the men of Novgorod to Viboy, a town of the Swedes, and they beat at it with six rams, 
for it was strong, and they killed many Swedes in the town, and hanged other Swedes in the town, and hanged others, and others they led away to the low country. Having laid siege to it for a month, they attacked it, and did not take it. But for our sins, several good men fell. <laughs> so, and, they, and they tried, and they failed. But some men died. <laughs> yeah. And we hanged these people and we hanged other people and we took away other people. I'm, I don't... The Novgorod Chronicle, whilst it's a very good source for us, it's not really Pulitzer Prize winning writing in it. No, and sometimes it's very specific saying, you know, we attacked with six machines or seven people were captured from this boat and then sometimes they just say other people yeah. and these people and some something happened. So it's really up and down. But it's exciting nonetheless. And uh, reading about this, I went down one of those rabbit holes we sometimes come across reading a fascinating article by Stephen Turnbull called Crossbows or Catapults, which is about siege weapons used in the Crusades in the Baltics in the 1220s based on Henry of Livonia's Chronicle. And basically, different groups had different siege weapons, and some of the people in the area around Novgorod were only just getting used to this technology, judging by this quite funny quote. The Russians, by which uh, Henry of Livonia means people living in Livonia rather than Novgorod, also made a little machine like that of the Germans, but not knowing the art of throwing rocks, they hurled them backwards and wounded many of their own men. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to sound dismissive, but the art of hurling rocks? I mean, how hard is it? You just lob a rock. No, but it's using the catapult. Oh, I see. I thought it was just with your hand. No, like, we're talking throw about... Throw a rock. <laughs> no, we're talking... <laughs> That's not an art. No, we're talking about the siege machine. Um, and apparently uh, this article goes on and on about this. And apparently it's quite, it was quite hard because of the torsion and the, like, the quick snap of the catapult. You needed a way to keep the rock in the catapult until it reached the ah, apex of the throw. And so um, apparently people used to stand quite close by and keep their hand on it so it didn't throw back and hit their own men. So basically, read crossbows or catapults if you want to find out more about all this fun stuff going on with siege weapons. Yeah, I take back everything I said. The conclusion of this slight ramble about siege technology is we know that catapult technology is definitely in the region. So this is perhaps what it's talking about here, as the quote about the malfunctioning machine comes from back in 1202, so the Novgorodians might have had time to take up that technology. Using catapults rather than battering rams would make sense, as we know that V-Boy Castle was made of stone at this point, Something pointed out in Philip Lienes' article Sweden's Conquest of Finland, A Clash of Cultures. This beefing up of the defences is also happening at the same time as Sweden is building up the administration in Finland, introducing tax regions called Slotslän, literally castle counties, being created around this time. They were based around the first major Swedish castles in Finland, Åbo, Raseboy, Tavestahus and Viboy, from where the officials governed these districts or counties. But yes, this is another inconclusive battle, although not 
inconclusive for the Swedes killed, hung, and taken away, presumably as slaves, uh, pretty conclusive. The main thing is that the siege failed and there was no victory for Novgorod. And this inconclusive end to the war will lead some of the leaders from either side to start thinking of peace in the eastern regions of Sweden and the Baltic Sea once more. It also lead Novgorodian mines to start their own defensive building program. And they do this in 1322, when they start construction on Nörteboy Castle, or Orokov. We'll likely stick to Nurtaboy in our narrative, but note that a lot of sources and some of the quotes we read out later on will call it Orokov. This impressive castle is actually built on a small island of the same name, right where the Neva River comes into Lake Ladoga. Um, we mean right where the river comes into Lake Ladoga. The river is only 500 metres wide at this point, although I guess that's still quite wide for a river. Um, and this fortress essentially plugs the gap where the river turns into the lake. It's an unbelievably impressive defensive location and covers the centre of the front line between Sweden and Novgorod, guarding all the important trade flowing from Lake Ladoga out to the Baltic Sea and beyond. Yes, we really recommend you put in Orokov Castle into like Google Maps and have a look at the location and the size of this island. Uh, the island itself is only about 380 meters long and 230 meters wide, but the island is the fortress. So yeah, have a look at that. It's really cool. Orokov is spelled O-R-E. K-H-O-V, by the way. But before this fortress can really be completed, back in Sweden, Ingeboy makes a decision. And much to the chagrin of the Swedish council, she takes it with the help of those pesky foreign advisors they don't like too much. And chiefly in this case, and in the future, it was Danish nobleman Knut Porser who was involving himself in these matters. Knut had actually lived almost his entire life in Sweden, as his father was one of the Danish nobles expelled from the country in 1286 for murdering then-king Erik Klipping. From the age of four, he'd grown up in Halland on the Swedish side, and by the 1320s was living in Varberg Castle there. It isn't entirely clear when their relationship began, but around this period it became clear that Knut and Ingeborg are lovers, and together they've decided that invading Skorna is worth the risk. However, because everyone involved is broke, <laughs> to do this they need a loan. This is taken from the Hanseatic town of Stralsund, right on the German north coast opposite Rügen Island. The payback for the loan is free trade in Sweden and Norway for Strassen's traders, something that presumably Ingeborg is trying to push through the councils. Calling in on her other agreement, Ingeborg receives 200 knights on horseback for six months from Henry the Lion, Lord of Mecklenburg, and adds these to the Norwegian troops that she is able to gather, because remember, the Norwegians are in favour of her little gambit in Skåne. In the autumn of 1322, Knut leads these troops over the border and into Skåne, despite the Swedish council's fierce protests. The army reaches my hometown, Lund, and then something quite bizarre happens. 
Yes, because Henry's troops change size and join the Danes. Knut's army decides it can't fight against this combined German and Danish force, considering their whole army was based on the fact they had these 200 German knights. And so that's it. Invasion called off and Knut's army marches home before the invasion's really begun. This is quite bizarre. There isn't really any information about why Henry changes sides he just does the fact that Ingeboy hasn't managed to achieve anything isn't lost on the two councils though now the situation really is turning bad for the queen mother her military campaign ended in spectacular failure i have to say she now has no powerful german ally and she has alienated the two most powerful groups of people in her respective countries yeah, this isn't looking good for Ingeborg. Seeing her weakness, letters of summons are sent out across Sweden. There is going to be a meeting. Shortly after the invasion is called off, the council is summoned to a meeting in Skara, just a stone's throw away, in fact, in the grand scheme of things, from Ingeborg's main castle in Axval. There is only one item on the agenda. Ingeborg. And what to do about this troublesome regent and queen mother? From the council's perspective, she's thrown away peace with Denmark, squandered hard-earned money, and is ignoring their advice, which was not to do this <laughs> terrible thing to begin with, in favour of an exiled Danish nobleman and other youthful foreigners. It doesn't look good, that's for sure. The aim of the meeting is to try and sideline Ingeboy. The council still fears she will try and seize total power from them and they take their ban on foreigners serving on the council one step further. They forbid foreign noblemen from entering Sweden completely, ensuring that nobody can turn up with an army and ally themselves with Magnus's mother. If that wasn't enough, the council agreed amongst themselves that a number of measures should be taken against Ingeboy. No order from Ingeboy should be accepted without the approval from the entire council, and all agreements made with her by individual councillors were now null and void. This is effectively all of Ingeborg's authority gone, shattered in one flick of a quill. She has managed to do something that King Boja and his brothers had tried to do for years, unite the nobility of Sweden. Of course, she's united them against her, so this isn't much of an achievement. The quarrels of the Civil War were over, but the rage of the council was now only facing one person. The council also tried and mend wounds with Denmark, agreeing to cut off all plans, both known and those we can assume, and enter into a fresh peace treaty with the neighbours, who are probably just as confused as everyone else as to what was all going on. It's in this meeting of the council that some sources suggest that Matt Shettleson leaves his position as drops and is replaced by Knut Jonsson. So, as this is the timeline that we're sticking with, uh, as opposed to him leaving a few years previously, let's say that this is happening now. So... Matt Shettleson has left his position of drops, and we also know that a key person in the council meeting at this time was a man called Gregors Magnusson, a lawman from Vestmanland. And so keep his name in the back of your head for now too, because he's going to return. If Ingeborg thought all of this was bad enough, 
she was wrong. It's gonna get even worse. The council set their sights on one of the few valuable things that she has left, her castle Axval. The council had had their eyes on this for a while as they argued that she had been due to give it to the state on the death of her husband, Duke Eric, whilst Ingeboy insisted she had the right to keep it for herself and eventually pass it on to her son. Ingeboy was probably in the right here, as the castle was originally given to her by Eric as a morongova. That's a gift from a husband to his wife on the morning after their wedding. It literally means morning gift. And so she owned it in her own right. It wasn't that she was due to inherit it after Eric's death, so she has held it for ten years at this point. The council don't see it that way, of course, and the war of words escalates, and a few months later, in 1323, the frustrated council agreed to besiege the castle. Swedish troops are on the march towards internal enemies once again. The castle soon falls, and Ingeborg is forced to accept, punishing terms dictated by the council and give up her claim on the castle. If this wasn't bad enough, in February 1323, the Norwegian Regency Council stages its own mini-coup, led by Erling Vidkunsen, and rebels against Ingeborg. Erling was from a noble family from the far north of Norway, and he quickly installed himself as Drottsetta, the Norwegian equivalent of Drotts, as head of the Norwegian State Board of Royal Authority, which sounds very modern, uh, and is called the Norske Riksstyret med Kunliga Myndighet in Norwegian. This meant that in the space of a few months, Ingeborg's power had been limited to what was unanimously approved by votes in the council, which effectively removed any chance of real influence for her. She really is now outnumbered, outgunned, and politically outmaneuvered in both of the two councils. And she's lost her favourite castle, which nobody likes to do. No, I don't like giving up any castles. This really does seem to mean that it's over for Ingeborg politically, and it's all thanks to her ill-fated alliance and failed invasion of Skorna. The good thing for her, though, is that neither council have any plans to replace Magnus as king, so if she feels like she wants to wait over a decade until he comes of age and then potentially ask him to restore her position, she could try and play this long game. If she's sensible and plays her cards right and lays low for a while, it might just work. We'll have to see what she ends up doing, but before we can do that, we'll see what happens over with Novgorod, because it's time to put the recent conflict with that eastern city to rest. For the first time ever, the Swedes and the Novgorodians decide to sit down for formal peace talks and end the fighting formally. And the location? The Novgorodians' brand new fortress at Nörteboy. The Novgorodians probably wanted to show off the fact that they had a castle fit to rival V-Boy, although they were probably mainly going to boast about the location, as the castle was made out of wood. After all, it was finished in just a year, so they probably couldn't beat the Swedes with their stone castle in the sense of uh, construction. 
No, but the location was certainly impressive. You can only imagine the Swedish reaction when they saw it for the first time and began to row or sail, hopefully not swim, out to the island. It would certainly have been an impressive sight. And so, after a bit of back and forth at the negotiating table, on the 12th of August 1323, a peace treaty was signed at the castle between Sweden and the Novgorod Republic, who were represented by Grand Prince Yuri. It officially recognises a stop in the Swedish plans to take over the Neva River, but Sweden, in return, gets more formal control over lots of border areas in Finland that Novgorod had previously been keen to lay their own claim on. Not only could the treaty claim to be the first between the two sides, it also tried to settle quite a few contentious items that seemed to rile up both groups of people. For one, an actual border between the two has been drawn up. Unfortunately, though, like almost any border negotiation throughout history, it hasn't been drawn very carefully or at least involved too much compromise. So let's see how this progresses going forward. Still, it's decided that the border shall run from where the Sustobikan River meets the Bay of Finland to what's called the Kajaino Sea in the Russian text. What the Kajaino Sea actually was remains a point of contention for historians, because it doesn't mean anything to us today. Finnish historian Jakkola claimed that the border was drawn from a point south of the Ula River, which makes the Kajaola Sea the Bay of Bothnia, but other historians aren't so sure, so yeah, this remains a bit of a mystery. Historian Jagelen has theorised that they never actually drew a clear-cut border between the two countries all the way up the Scandinavian peninsula, but instead decided to leave northern Finland alone as a sort of free-for-all area. But it was the southern part, and much more useful and important but also contentious part of Finland, that had this much more defined border. Novgorod actually gave up three hundreds, as in three counties, or herad in Swedish, and these were Eirapa, Jeskis, and Savolax. This is something that Philip Lina points to when looking at tax collection extended to these areas in a few years' time in 1329. So we can see, for example, that the Tionda tax was clearly levied in Savolax, and sometimes that area is just called Savo. A Tionda was this canonical tax that we've mentioned briefly before, and in Finland it was actually determined by where you lived. Inland areas had this tax fixed by statute and was paid in furs, and this fur will come back to haunt some of the clergy in the next episode, by the way, so remember these furs, whereas the tax was paid in meat and agricultural produce in the more coastal regions. So Novgorod must have seen a lot of benefits to defining the border and seizing the conflict with Sweden if they were content with handing over three counties in exchange for a signature on the parchment. They did manage to get one other concession from Sweden into the treaty, though, as the agreement states that Sweden shall remain neutral in conflicts between Estonia and Novgorod. So no proxy wars for Sweden trying to destabilize Novgorod via Estonia. 
I'm sure there were some uh, Swedish politicians that were quite grumpy at that. Yeah. Overall, the end result is that there is peace. Novgorod gets secure control of the Neva River and safety for its merchants on the Baltic Sea, and Sweden gets some territory handed over to it, and its claims over other areas of Finland are recognised. That genuinely does seem like a good deal for both sides. In fact, this was seen as such a fair and definitive treaty that all future treaties between Sweden and Novgorod will use this as a basis. They'll come back and tweak this one instead of creating whole new treaties. Yeah, this really is the Treaty 1.0 in every sense of the word. So after the fighting that has been on and off since the 1100s, the results are now more clear in the area. The areas of southwest Finland, Tavastaland and West Karelia are Swedish, whereas Ladoga, Eastern Karelia and Ingomanland, uh, that's the bit of modern-day Russia that's south of St. Petersburg and runs up towards Estonia, those are Novgorodian. Philip Line suggests that this border created a much stronger sense of Sweden versus Novgorod, with these identities being strengthened and taking hold over other identities in the area. Because previously this area had been contested and it, there had been sort of local tribes and groups that either Sweden or Novgorod was more in control over, but now it's more settled. So instead of these local identities, such as Tavastians or Karelians, people would gradually come to be seen as more Swedes or Novgorodian, eventually Russian. It also helped that the people from Novgorod and under the Novgorod banner, uh, they were quite strictly Orthodox Christian, and the Swedes and the people of their local areas were now Catholic. So that made the definitions just as clear now as those on the map. As you might imagine, having quite strict and passionate religious divides might be a cause of concern. But we'll have to see that later when these uh, lines on the map become more formally embedded. The border, of course, wasn't uncrossable. It wasn't a World War I-style no-man's land where people were stabbed just for stepping outside of their little area. People would have hunted and traded and fished across the borders, but the treaty must have reinforced this feeling of us and them when looking over into the other country. Speaking of crossing borders, four men go on a bit of a holiday trip as the calendar ticks over to the summer of 1325. These are four German soldiers serving in the Swedish army in Finland, and they travel across the Baltic Sea to the Hanseatic town of Reval, nowadays known as Tallinn in the capital of Estonia. This was then in the Danish Duchy of Estonia and was the northernmost member of the Hanseatic League when it had joined in 1285. Just like Visby, Reval had a series of defensive walls all around the city. 
And I've been up those walls around uh, Tallinn. They're very interesting. They've obviously been added to and improved over time, but they were very fun to walk around. That's nice. And it seems to have been a nice place in 1325 as well, as these German soldiers arrive and get, quote, entwined in excessiveness. Which I think is kind of a nice way to say that they had uh, large amounts of beer and had some fun. But then it seems like uh, the fun stopped because they murdered someone. The locals arrest them, put them on trial and sentence them to death and, well, execute them. Well, it's swift justice in Estonia (laughs) and not necessarily the best holiday for these German soldiers. No, absolutely not. News travels fast about this kind of shenanigans, uh, despite there not being uh, email or social media or even a radio. But the news travels back to Finland, to the men's encampment. And who is there to hear the news? Well, our favorite, Mats Kjetilsson. At this point, he is enjoying political retirement and is back doing what he enjoyed doing the most fighting. He is now a Hervitsman, a type of military commander in Finland, and therefore in charge of these murderous German soldiers. He hears about their execution and is understandably a bit upset, so he decides to attack Reval. That's uh, an extreme judicial appeal. Is uh, Would you like to appeal? Yes, I appeal with my army. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't change the execution because you've already done it, but I want my vengeance. And that's what he tries to get. But he also decides to wait for spring and more favourable weather to launch a full-scale invasion because, after all, they have to cross the sea to get there. He does, however, start launching small-scale raids across the Baltic Sea, starting in October 1325, and this includes seizing some ships which are heading towards Reval. Why Shettleson does this is a bit unclear, apart from the obvious him wanting to avenge his dead soldiers. All of Northern Europe was in a bit of turmoil at this point, and especially Denmark, so maybe this was just an early attempt from Sweden or Matt Shettleson to get a foot in the door in Estonia whilst Denmark is crumbling, and maybe down the line even attempt to get control of the whole country. After all, as I said, Denmark was in pieces and maybe they thought they could get away with it. Or perhaps there were some unknown personal reasons for either Matt Shepelson or Sweden in general to try and attack Reval. It seems unusual to start attacking a Hanseatic town when they were so invested in this trade network themselves. It seems like a risky move for something that's definitely going to annoy the other traders. Reval's town council get very worried when they hear of Mats Schettelson's plans to attack, and news starts to trickle in about Swedish attackers seizing ships heading to the city. Whilst the city has these town walls to defend it, their supply of water is a weak spot that makes them vulnerable. A proper long-term siege could take them out. In early November 1325, a letter arrives from the Swedish council offering a settlement in good faith. We don't know what Reval replies, but we do have the Swedish reply to the reply 
from the 30th of November expressing de-escalation, but it says that they can't promise anything until the council and the Dorts have had a meeting to discuss the situation. Eventually, the Swedish council decides to not go ahead with Shettelson's war plans and they pull the plug and they send two men from Orville to Reval to sort it all out. In sad news for the podcast, though, Matt Shettelson dies on the 29th of May 1326. He's really been a favourite of ours up to this point, re-emerging so many times over the course of the last 40 years, sometimes when you least expect it. But his death does seem to make it a little bit easier for this whole affair in Reval. The peace treaty, which is actually a bit favourable to the city, is signed just two days after his death on the 31st of May 1326. So it really does seem like Matt Shettelson was the reason this all happened to begin with, and once he was out of the picture, it was easier to make peace. So after a few months of drama, peace returns to the Baltic Sea, something that I'm sure the Hansa merchants in particular would have appreciated. In his will, Mats Schettilsson gave his farm Aspnes in Östervalasocken in Uppland County to his wife Adelheid. Aspnes was probably his main estate, but it's not certain because there's no mention of Aspnes during the time he was alive and we don't know which other farms and estates he owned. At the time of his death, Mats Schettilsson also gave his armor and weapons to someone called Håkan Matsson. According to ancient local custom, this meant that Mats Schettilsson probably considered this Håkan his closest male relative. However, we don't know if Mats Schettilsson had any children or if he was related to this Håkan at all, so we just have to guess. Yeah, that seems to be what some historians have suggested, but we don't know for sure. So overall, this is another military situation sorted out through negotiation instead of battle. Sweden seems to be getting a bit better at the talking side of international politics rather than just fighting and killing people you don't like. 1326 has another sort of settlement too. In February of that year, Ingeborg comes to an agreement with the Swedish council. In exchange for having her extensive debts paid for her, Ingeborg gives up several of her personal holdings and is forced to send Knut Porser, her lover, into exile. She was then officially stripped of all political authority in the Regency Council. So this effectively confirms in writing what the council had agreed among themselves a few years earlier, plus exiles Knut back to Denmark. And Denmark probably wasn't the most fun place to be in 1326. Just three years after King Christopher II took the throne, a rebellion breaks out and a few Danish magnates ally themselves with two German counts and force the relatively new king to abdicate and send him into exile. Following the rebellion playbook to a T, they then install 12-year-old Duke Valdemar of Southern Jutland as King of Denmark, with Count Gerhard of Holstein as regent. Knowing they could control the young king, they forced Valdemar in his coronation charter to separate Southern Jutland from Denmark, so the king of Denmark would never rule over this area again. It seems like Knut Porse was part of this rebellion, as he received the southern part of Halland to add to Ingeborg's areas in that region. 
He receives that for himself as a thank you for his services to the two German counts who led the rebellion. However, it doesn't seem like there was too much agreement between the rebels about what to do next. In fact, arguments break out almost immediately over who gets to rule over which parts of Denmark, and the alliance breaks down completely. This means that Denmark is now just a series of independent counties and regions all ruled by different people, with a worthless 12-year-old figurehead nominally ruling the entire country. Yeah, if we thought Denmark was bad enough before, when rich German counts just ran some of the counties but still sort of listened to the king, this is really rock bottom. The country essentially doesn't exist now. But things actually keep getting better for Knut Porsa. Time moves forward once more, and in 1327, he marries Ingeborg, which is quite intriguing considering this is just a year after he was exiled from Sweden. So therefore, the Swedish council are very upset at this news, and it even manages to start annoying the Norwegian council, who have always been a bit more lenient and tolerant of Ingeborg's adventures and schemes. As part of their marriage, Knut becomes Duke of Halland, because whilst he had some of the Halland territory, the title of Duchess of Halland had always been Ingeborg's. And he also gets a claim on Ingeborg's estates. The couple also have two sons, although it's not sure exactly when these children are born, but presumably around about now. In general, it is clear that this marriage is only adding reasons to the list of why the councils don't trust Ingeboy. The suspicion is building as the world celebrates the transition into 1328. We've now had quite a few years where not too much is happening in Sweden, so we can assume the country is just ticking along fine, and Magnus is slowly growing older and learning more things about what it's like to be king. One thing that happens domestically in 1328 concerns reindeer herding in the north of the country. Following a dispute in northern Sweden, the Teljestadga, or the Order of Telje, is established, the north of what is modern-day Sweden was gradually increasing in population as people from the medieval country of Sweden travelled north to settle areas inhabited by native Sami people living there. These farmers and traders from Sweden started to build small communities on Sami land and eventually came into conflict with the Sami reindeer herders, as after all they were starting to build new lives on their land and disturb their way of life. Up until this point, settlers from the south had traded with the Sami, and the Order of Telia established in Swedish law that the Sami and the new settlers had the same right to equal income from land up in Norrbotten. The most northern county of modern-day Sweden is called Norrbotten, and that was the name of the general area in the medieval period too, but at this point in the story it wasn't an established county, it was just a rough wilderness, at least in the eyes of the Swedish king and the government. Of course, it was still a vibrant place full of culture, ideas and society inhabited by the Sami, but that's not a thing that the Swedish and other Scandinavian kingdoms respected. We need to mention that we think this is the first proper mention of 
Sami Swedish interaction that we've had in the timeline of our podcast in official documents and stuff from the government that is because the Swedish state and Swedish people are now starting to head further north and become more interested in that area. Uh, they are now encroaching on Sapmi, the name of the land of the Sami, and sadly this relationship will become increasingly fraught over the centuries until we reach the 18 and 1900s, when the full machine of the Swedish state leads to colonization, repression and forced assimilation of Sami populations and the forced relocation of local communities to make way for power plants and mines and roads and other infrastructure. This is the start of a very dark period of Swedish history and Swedish national conscience and something we need to note here first and say that we will of course return to it at some point in short or medium term to properly introduce the Sami population and Sapmi as an area now that they are starting to be more affected by the spread of the Swedish state. But for now, we should finish up this episode with one last development from Denmark. It's also in 1328 that the various nobles ruling their respective areas of Denmark really step up their exploitation of the so-called ex-country. Lots of heavy taxes were instituted after Valdemar was placed on the throne, and in this year peasants revolted in Zealand, but this was brutally suppressed by the local military. The following year, a further rebellion takes hold, this time in Jutland. This managed to cause a bit more fuss and burn down a few more buildings, but in the end this was put down too. However, the public mood was clearly turning. The growing chaos across the disparate counties and regions led the German counts in charge of the more prosperous areas to propose a change. How about we get rid of this Valdemar kid and we bring back Christopher from exile? Maybe then the people will see they have a rightful king they should be listening to and they might start to settle down. Well, that is what they do. Valdemar is deposed and demoted back to Duke of Schleswig. He probably didn't really notice too much of a difference in his day-to-day -day life, to be honest. But Christopher was restored as Danish king the following year in 1329. He's back. But if this Chris thought he was going to get his own way and start ruling properly as a real king, he was to be mistaken. He was absolutely going to be a puppet of these German counts right from the start. The counts demanded that he pay them 100,000 silver marks to be recognised as the ruler of Jutland, for example. And this money had to be put on the table all at once, no questions asked. And of course, Christopher doesn't have this money. This is the whole reason why Denmark is in pieces to begin with. It's an impossible sum to pay. And so Count Gerhard simply claims Jutland as his personal property, with his sidekick Count Yuan doing the same with Thunan and Zealand. There is some good news to come out of all this drama, though, for Ingeboy and Knut Porse, as Knut is made Duke of Estonia at the same time, in 1329, presumably as a thank you from the counts for his help in Denmark earlier on. 
Knut can't really celebrate for too long as he dies the following year. He leaves his areas of Halland to his two sons that he's had with Ingeborg. Although, as like all the time, they're so young they can't do anything with it, so it's Ingeborg who will have been in charge of this for them for quite a while. The Swedish council were probably quite relieved that this troublesome foreign noble was finally out of the picture. Maybe now Ingeborg would see sense and stop meddling in the affairs of state and leave them to their role of steering the country through the choppy waters of the 1300s. And the council probably actually needed some sort of choppy water though, as the only other thing we have in the books for 1330 is that there's a big fire in Stockholm that guts most of the city. Wow, that isn't a good year for the city. But for Sweden as a whole, it has been a pretty successful eight or nine years leading up to 1330. There is peace with Novgorod, with clear borders set in the south of Finland, thanks to the first ever treaty between the two peoples. And Denmark is in pieces, quite literally, which must have caused some schadenfreude in Stockholm, at least until it all burnt down. There was also a war with Reval averted thanks to more negotiation, and Ingeboy has been successfully sidelined from all major decisions in the kingdom. Things have certainly calmed down after the intense period of civil war. People were probably quite glad to have a break. Uh, the last few years have uh, seen no notable events in Sweden at all, which is Definitely a new thing to contend with. Maybe the council were even bored. Yeah, they were probably playing Nefertuffle <laughs> all the time instead of signing their papers. Yeah. And so that was the state of the country when Magnus, at age 15 in 1331, was declared to have come of age. The king is now truly the king. And the Regency Council was no more and went back to being the council. But they were probably a little wary of what the new ruler would do regarding his mother. Would she try and get revenge on the council through her son, or would his son be loyal to those who had successfully steered the country through a troublesome decade, or perhaps he'll come up with some middle ground? We'll have to see what Magnus gets up to in our next episode. We will indeed, and before we go, we'd just like to say thank you to George on Facebook for a lovely message he sent about a month or so ago, and for some great comments on some of the pictures we have posted on the Facebook page. If you'd like to send us a message, leave a review, or send us a tweet, then please do get in touch. Yes, I'm sure you all know the details by now, so we won't mention them this time. We'll just uh, say goodbye and see you next time. Hey, Dale. Ciao.